All right, Nicole, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, it is great to have you here. And just for our listeners, could you give a little bit of background as to um, why you're qualified to talk about healthcare and our healthcare systems? Oh, yeah. So I'm the Edward R. Utley Professor of Health Law at BU School of Public Health and a professor of law at the School of Law at Boston University. And I have studied health reform and the power of Congress, it's called the spending power and how it influences payment for healthcare in the United States for a long time. Um, my work has been cited by the US Supreme Court, other federal courts and state courts. I have two books on health law. One is called The Law of American Healthcare. One is called Public Health Law. I've published in national, international, legal, medical, public health and other policy journals. Um, so this is what I spend a lot of time thinking about and also helping people to understand. Everybody wants to talk, but nobody wants to listen. So here's my petition. Instead of division, let's make our mission to change the system. Learn how the world works. Learn how we can act. Welcome everybody to the Justice Podcast. So obviously a lot of experience. Um, I was never questioning your your ability to be able to talk about this. It's more just for the audience's uh, benefit. Um, but I think before we dive into the nitty gritty, um, and we're not going to cover every single aspect of healthcare today, um, but uh, maybe just what was it that interested you in this field in the first place? Yeah, so when I practiced law, I actually practiced in big law firms in New York and New Jersey and represented healthcare providers of all different stripes. And I found they often asked me questions like, why do I have to do this? And often the answer was because you take money from the government and that money comes with rules. But I also found in representing some of the um, more community-oriented safety net providers that those rules also affected whether people could get access to care. And frankly, money drives healthcare in the United States, and it always has. And that's not just government money. That's private money. That's all kinds of money. And so um, practicing gave me a particular way of thinking about what makes healthcare what it is in the United States. And just to be clear, it is not a system. We don't have a system for healthcare in the United States. And that's part of what makes it so confusing. It's confusing to providers. It's confusing to patients. It's confusing to the people who support providers and patients. If we were designing a system, this would not be it. So that makes it incredibly complicated to talk about in a short period of time. But that's what drew me to writing in this area initially is all of the experiences I had interacting with those clients over time. So that this sounds like a few of the other conversations I've had uh, on the podcast and that defining it as a system is really a, maybe a series of systems that are interacting with each other, um, but inefficiently perhaps. Um, one of the things you mentioned was that when the government spends money, there's rules attached. Um, some people would argue, well, the government shouldn't be involved. We should just have totally free market. Um, why would you say that's a good or bad idea? 
So from a historical perspective, I think it's important for people to understand that we have known since the Great Depression that people cannot afford to pay purely out of pocket for healthcare in the United States. This has been a clear feature of healthcare for a long time. And part of the reason is that historically, healthcare has been a private transaction in the United States. If a person wanted to get care from a doctor, they would go to a doctor's office and say, I fell out of a tree, I might've broken my arm, will you treat me? And the doctor could say yes or no. And the doctor's answer could be prefaced with, do you have money to pay me to treat you? So historically, healthcare in the United States has been a private transaction. That private transaction has become more and more regulated as it has become clearer that the markets are far from perfect. We will never have a perfect market in healthcare because there will always be an imbalance between those who know the people in the learned professions, whether they're physicians, nurses, physician assistants, other specialists, and or the institutions that make it so that they have places to practice like hospitals and nursing homes and other kinds of healthcare providers, and the patient. Even doctors, when they become patients, experience this power imbalance. And so for markets to function well, you cannot have a permanent power imbalance. And so this power imbalance gets exacerbated by the fact that historically healthcare was a private market-based transaction in the United States. And so more and more people have become excluded from access to care in the private law-based, transaction-based approach to healthcare in the United States. So really since the New Deal era, right, since, since World War II, the federal government has had some role in paying for access to medical care in the United States, not only because individuals couldn't afford to pay for healthcare, but also because states couldn't afford to provide the safety net anymore at that point. So over time, what has happened is that states and the federal government have provided both regulatory frameworks and sources of funding for people to access healthcare in the United States. But because it has grown slowly over time, it is very hard to understand because there are lots of layers to how all of that works. I know that there's a lot of complexity and to think that, okay, maybe in a laboratory setting or in a theoretical framework, we could start from scratch and, and build something perfect. Um, but we have this sort of piecemeal layered, not even real system that exists. Um, one of the questions I want to address is how does it how does it play out with this kind of federalism issue of this division between state and federal power in healthcare? Great question. Uh, for me, all roads lead to federalism. <laughs> I write about federalism <laughs> a lot uh, because historically, again, and it's hard to understand things without context. Historically, states are responsible for what we think of as public health, safety, and welfare. The states have what we call police power to protect public health, safety, and welfare. And that means historically states were responsible for things like, you know, all of our social programs. However, sorry, there was a little bit of background noise. Um, again, states are not actually economically capable of being permanently responsible for public health, safety, and welfare. 
And Congress does have authority to do things like regulate national markets and to spend for the general welfare. And so what we've seen over time is that where states have either failed from a regulatory perspective or have failed to have the money to address social problems, where those problems are national problems, Congress somewhat incrementally has stepped in to fix those problems. And usually when Congress does that, it doesn't just take over that policy area, it invites states to continue to partner. And so when you think of federalism in healthcare, it is less helpful to think of sort of separate spheres of authority and more helpful to think of a dynamic relationship where often the federal government offers some money to address a national problem and invites the states to participate in addressing that national problem with that federal money and often partnering with some federal agency that's offering support in a particular way. So this is what people sometimes call cooperative federalism, where the states and the federal government work together to use often federal money, sometimes with a state match, like you have in a program like Medicaid, which is a healthcare program for low-income people, so that there is sort of this, um, purposeful, I wouldn't say redundancy, but there are layers of authority and expertise being brought to the problem. And so uh, federalism is really important in the healthcare space and in the public health space. It may surprise your listeners to learn, for example, that we have more than 2,800 public health agencies in the United States. Some of them are state, some of them are local, some of them are a hybrid. Then of course there's the CDC, which offers money and expertise to all of them. Some of them are tribal, right? And so I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, is that level of decentralization and diffusion actually the best way to address the kinds of problems that we have? If we take the recent example of something like the COVID-19 pandemic, diseases do not honor borders. Mm -hmm. Diseases don't care if it's a state boundary, a city boundary, an international boundary, right? And when we have collective problems, typically we need some kind of national response, but the federal government isn't everywhere all the time. And so its choice is typically to partner with states or localities. However, if states or localities don't participate, then that policy runs into problems. What are your thoughts? Is Congress stepping in during COVID-19 to maybe make this more of a national um, policy issue as far as healthcare and the way that we address problems. Um, is that a good step in the right direction that we need anyway? Um, or is that something that should be more temporary? So the way that federal laws pertaining to public health emergencies are written, the power is always temporary. And it is a matter of Congress making use of existing authority in laws that have been duly enacted that have existed for a long time. And as I said a moment ago, even those laws will ask states to participate in responding to the emergency or disaster. So it isn't really accurate to say that Congress is taking over. Usually what's happening is that there is a situation that is triggered by certain circumstances written in federal law that will, for example, give the Department of Health and Human Services the authority to declare a public health emergency. And that makes it so that HHS can do things like waive rules pertaining to um, 
being licensed in a particular state so that physicians can cross state lines and address the public health emergency that is existing in another state. That can be really important, for example, if there's a natural disaster like a tornado or a hurricane, where you may not have enough healthcare providers on the ground. So federal laws actually facilitate the crossing of state lines to provide care and then pay for that care through programs like Medicaid. And it's on a temporary basis. And, and it's always on a temporary basis. Even the relief bills that Congress tends to enact in these situations, which sort of globally get called relief bills, that's the term you'll read in the news, they are always short term. They will provide money for certain circumstances that is terminal. It only lasts for a year, two years, maybe five if you're a lucky state, right? And the reason that matters is when an emergency occurs, people lose their jobs, people lose their homes, and that means they lose the ability to work, which means they can't spend money, which means tax revenue decreases. So the states then have less money to spend in the moment that they need more money. So Congress is giving money to states to help them stay afloat and address the emergency or disaster while it's occurring. It is unusual to take the tone of your question, I think in the way that it's intended, that the public health emergency for COVID-19 has lasted as long as it has, but what that has done, has it has made it so that, for example, state Medicaid programs have continued to provide health insurance to people who needed access to health insurance during the public health emergency. And this has been especially important, for example, for vulnerable populations. Uh, as your listeners probably know, um, people who are low income, people of color, elderly people have been especially hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's exactly who is helped by a program like Medicaid. So the Public Health Emergency Authority is typically exercised on a much shorter term basis than we've seen during COVID. But again, as your question suggests, the, the COVID-19 pandemic is hopefully a once in a century event. So I wouldn't say that it is typical. I would say that it is somewhat unusual in the duration, but the way that power has been exercised has been fairly standard. So maybe we can zoom back in, kind of ground this conversation again, because we've discussed the you know 2800 healthcare organizations and entities that are in the country and you know there's federalism state and federal power um but jordan on the street isn't going to know or doesn't really care even if they do know um about this decentralization issue i mean how does decentralization um or just the kind of sporadic nature of our healthcare I'll call it a system, even though we're saying it's not a system. Um, how does that structure affect actual access? So I think the thing for the person on the street to understand is where they stand determines what kind of access to care they have. Zip code determines health. Because states still do have a very strong role in regulating health care. And that means that there's a long history behind the kinds of health policies that states engage in, what kind of access to care is facilitated, how healthcare providers are licensed, um, what it means in terms of the relationships between providers and how easy that makes it for the average person to access care in the state in which they live. 
each state is different. So you always have to ask which state when you're talking about healthcare. <laughs> so access to care in a state like Massachusetts, where I'm sitting, is very different from access to care in a state like Arkansas. And it's not just that there's a long, robust history of paying attention to health policy in Massachusetts, but also that it is a healthcare-rich environment where healthcare providers are paid well. Um, and there's a lot of money in the healthcare industry in Massachusetts. And also it's not a state with vast rural areas. So states with vast rural areas are gonna have different kinds of access problems than uh, smaller states with less of a, of a geography like that. So, so where you are really matters. And then the other thing I would say is it depends on whether you're insured or not. Having health insurance opens the door to more consistent access to care in the United States. And we have a very complex hybrid system of health insurance access. And that is because we rely, if you're a non-elderly person, a majority of people still rely on employer-sponsored health insurance coverage. Small majority, but still a majority. And that means people get health insurance as an employment benefit. A good portion of the population is either elderly or permanently disabled and they rely on Medicare. And then people who are low income rely on Medicaid. And so at this time we have around 8% of the population is uninsured in the United States, but that too depends on which state you're in. Because if you're in a state that hasn't expanded eligibility for Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, which some people call Obamacare, then you will not have access to Medicaid in the same way that people in other states do. And that is a state-based decision. Any state can expand Medicaid eligibility under the ACA if they so choose. And that significantly decreases the number of people who are uninsured in a state. So having health insurance coverage makes a big difference to Jordan on the street. In addition though, even people who are insured, especially if they have to have employer-sponsored health insurance coverage, may suffer from what we call underinsurance, which means you have health insurance coverage, but it is not sufficient for people to feel like they can get the care that they need. This happens for a couple of reasons. So one example is, statistically speaking, over the last decade and more, for people who have employer-sponsored health insurance coverage, the amount of money they have to pay out of pocket to use that coverage has been increasing. So it's not just that premiums have been increasing and the premium is the amount of money that you pay to have that contract with the health insurer so that you have health insurance coverage, which by the way, you have to renew every year, right? Mm -hmm. It's like more than $20,000 now for employer-sponsored insurance. And about two thirds of that is paid by the employer, but the rest is paid by the employee. In addition to that, right? So you're paying the equivalent of a small car to get health insurance coverage, private health insurance coverage with the help of your employer, which also, by the way, is subsidized by the federal government, which most people don't realize, through tax benefits to employers and employees. In addition to that, most people have deductibles, meaning they have to pay a certain amount of money out of pocket before the insurance kicks in. Deductibles, on average, are now more than $1,000 a year for employer-sponsored health insurance coverage. So employer-sponsored insurance increasingly means that even though it is still a popular way for people to get insurance coverage, it is um, creating this phenomenon of underinsurance where people have health insurance coverage but can't get what they need. So 
unfortunately, the cost of care in the United States feels out of reach for a lot of people. Yeah, uh, that's and that's a real problem. Um, and, and so maybe as we think about how we could potentially address this problem as a nation, um, not this year, but next year is is a presidential election. Um, and soon, probably, we're going to start hearing a lot more about a variety of issues in the news and campaign ads. Um, what should the listeners be asking themselves uh, when they're evaluating a candidate's healthcare stance? I think there are a few things people need to think about. One is, realistically, government is going to be in the game, no matter what your political perspective is. We have decades upon decades of history, politics, policy, law that tells us government's going to be in the game. So don't think you can suddenly wave a magic wand and have no government involvement in healthcare. The question is, what kind of healthcare system do we want and what do you get from the candidates? And so we have right now a hybrid public-private healthcare non-system. And different candidates want to make different parts of that more or less robust. So they might want to make something like uh, Medicare a stronger program. Medicare is health insurance coverage for elderly. You turn 65, you get into Medicare. For example, some people have talked about decreasing the age at which you get into Medicare um, or expanding the kinds of benefits that Medicare provides so that people get regular eyeglasses and regular dental care coverage. Why are they not covered? Because the program was created in 1965 when we didn't have health insurance coverage for those kinds of things. So you have to think about, is that the kind of conversation that is meaningful to me? Or are you someone who is relying on the health insurance exchanges created by the Affordable Care Act to purchase individual health insurance coverage, which really didn't exist almost at all before the ACA. If you're relying on the exchanges and the government subsidies that are available to purchase health insurance on the exchanges, is there gonna be any improvement to what you can get there? Uh, are you gonna have broader networks of coverage available to you through the private insurance that you purchase on the exchanges, for example, or are the subsidies from the IRS gonna be more robust? If you're someone who relies on Medicaid, is Medicaid going to be stabilized or destabilized by the people you're thinking about electing? If you're talking about uh, doing things like instituting work requirements in a program like Medicaid, which is again, health insurance for low-income people, statistically speaking, people who are low-income are working and are not able to get health insurance through their jobs. The more money you make, the more likely you are to have access to employer-sponsored health insurance. So requiring things like work in Medicaid might sound good in a nation that values work, right? But A, most people are already working. And B, we know that work requirements actually result in disenrollment, which means people will not have health insurance coverage, will not be healthy, will not be able to work. So it creates a sort of downward spiral. So I think the thing to think about is don't just listen to very broad ideas and think they sound okay. You have to sort of ask yourself, what is this person talking about? Which part of the system are they talking about? Are they talking about paying for care? 
Are they talking about regulating healthcare providers? Are they talking about public health programs and making it so that we as a population are healthier or less healthy? Um, I think you have to sort of be able to dissect the promises and understand too, there's a difference between promises that are made during an election and what can actually happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> because all of these things are complicated. There are differences between policy, which is the idea, law, which gives the idea teeth, and politics, which is sort of the question of achievability, right? And so when we're thinking about politics, sometimes there's a distance between the policy idea that politicians will put forth and whether it is lawful <laughs> and whether it is achievable. <laughs> so so you have to sort of do your own dissection because I think, I mean, even, even when President Trump came into office, he said, wow, healthcare is much more, healthcare is really hard, who knew, right? Uh, <laughs> so um, I think politicians, even when they make lofty promises about healthcare, get into office and realize they're maybe biting off more than they can chew. I mean, the history of the ACA is when President Obama came into office, uh, he was told, don't bother with healthcare the economy is easier. Well, that doesn't sound like it should be easier. The economy is hard, but healthcare is so hard that it is hard for people on the street and hard for politicians. Hmm. So maybe we, last question to kind of wrap us up um, and you can share any other wisdom you got in the last couple minutes here um, is, is there a specific sector of this industry of this challenge, this behemoth of a challenge um, that you feel like will give us the most bang for our buck? I guess I have, I have two answers that are not really related, but I think are both important. So if you'll allow me to, I'll keep it short. Sure. The first is we need to get past the question of uninsurance. We need, I, I'm, I'm tired of this debate. We need states to just get on the Medicare, Medicaid expansion train the Medicaid expansion train needs to be done. We shouldn't be debating anymore whether people need health insurance coverage or not. They do. They, evidence, more than 600 studies show Medicaid expansion is beneficial to state budgets, to healthcare providers, and to people. <laughs> so, so the evidence is we need to just finish the conversation about health insurance coverage and move on, right? So, so let's be done with that. Let, let's just get people covered because enough of that already. We've been talking about this for so long and we're all sick of it. So let's be done with the health insurance coverage conversation, at least for now, and, and deal with the hybrid that we have. The big open secret of all of this, though, and I guess it is related because you could see it as an insurance problem, but it's bigger than that, is that we have no way to deal with the problem of long-term care in the United States. Mm. Medicare, our program for the elderly, doesn't cover long-term care, and most people don't know that. It covers skilled nursing home care when you're released from a hospital, but that's about it. So your average grandma or grandpa who needs to go to a nursing home for what we think of as custodial care, Medicare doesn't cover it. Medicaid does. So uh, then you have to be impoverished and elderly to be covered by Medicaid, which means that most families are struggling with how to help members of their family who are either elderly or disabled and need care but don't want to be or cannot afford to be institutionalized. So how are we gonna deal with the problem of long-term care and especially making it so that long-term care can be achieved in community settings, which evidence shows us are better for people and frankly, economically better as well. 
I would say that someone needs to start thinking deeply about the problem of long-term care, which will only get harder and worse as we have an aging of the population in the United States. This isn't financial, legal, or medical advice, but we do discuss how we might invest our resources for a healthier society. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and other public policy issues, check out the website, thejusticepodcast.com.